when I'm sitting in my basement in front of a microphone, especially if my kids are asleep upstairs, my instinct is to whisper into my microphone, which can sound unbearably pretentious. Whereas if I'm standing up, it's like you have a different personality when you're standing up. I've, like, I think about it, when you're at a party, sometimes you're standing in a kitchen having a conversation and sometimes you're sitting in the living room having a conversation. I feel like you have different conversations when you're standing in the kitchen. And I sort of want my podcast to sound more like that conversation in the kitchen than the conversation in the living room. Podcast Junkies, a.k.a. The Podcaster's Voice. This is the show where we talk to interesting, fascinating podcasters and uh, get you to get a peek into what makes them tick and why they started the podcast and whatever else um, we touch upon. So this week I'm talking to Rob McGinley Myers of Anxious Machine. Anxious Machine is part of the Herd Collective, probably one of the coolest collective names out there, when you think about what it means, it's a collection of uh, other podcasts, and it's spelled H-E-A-R-D, so I like that. So we connected on email, and I had spoken to Vanessa Lowe of Nocturne before, and I thought it would be cool to speak to Rob. I think he reached out to me, and when he did, I knew obviously knew right away. I wanted to have him on. I had heard him on Podcast Method with Dan Lizette, and Dan did a, a fantastic job with that interview. So it's something that I think about when I hear guests come um, or guests are going to come on, and I know that they've been on other shows and the, and the host has done a, a fantastic job. So I want to see what I can bring that adds another layer to the conversation. And possibly brings out something in the guest that wasn't brought out before. I, I'm of the opinion that you could take the same guest and have him be on ten different shows. And if the if the interviewer uh, interviewers are good, you'll have uh, ten completely different interviews. So that's something that I've been cognizant of and making sure that uh, I pay close attention to what's happening. Um, to what I'm given and to opportunities to go deeper on some stuff. I think that happened here. <laughs> we had a, uh, a wide ranging conversation. I feel like I say that a lot, but we did on um, the origins of the show, the, the, his thought process on the, and some of the stories that he, he's, he's told the podcast itself deals with, um, the topic of what makes us human and initially around the idea of humans relationship with machines, but it's evolved into our relationships with all things that are made by humans. And the show has really hit its stride. There's some really fantastic episodes. I, I recommend if you're into uh, the storytelling uh, type of podcasts specifically go check out the all my days have been guns episode which is um really well produced the the character the person in the story is uh highly engaging and uh 
really well done. So something you need to check out. And so I, I always wondered like what people think about when they're interviewing these folks. And I, I think I was trying to ask if some of this is projected into um, their lives, especially when it comes to children and the experience that, of their guests uh, that their guests have with children and, and if they think about those things uh, for their own. So in, enjoy the conversation with Rob and I'd be interested to hear what you think about this overall concept of anxiety. Well, it's interesting because podcasting is definitely uh, a medium, not a genre. Like there are many different genres. And the fact that like the whole entrepreneurial side of podcasting is huge, but I've never heard a single one of those shows. And then there's the whole technology side of pod podcasting, which a lot of people, you know, if you're outside of that world, you haven't heard any of those shows, but they're some of the most popular shows. Really popular. And they've been, there's, you know? there's gamer podcasts that have been going on for like it's, 10 years. Yeah. Right. And, and then the, within the, uh, there's the podcasts about, about podcasting. <laughs> right. Which is a whole new genre. Which is what they, I, people were, I mean, initially lumping me into because technically it is, but there were podcasts that taught you how to podcast. And so school of podcasting, um, podcasters round table, and these serve the hobbyists and they show them how to get their podcast started because there's so much information now. And a lot of it is bad. Um, right. And there's one called smart passive income. I don't know if you've heard of that. That's probably one of the more popular mm -hmm. entrepreneurial ones, hmm. but I imagine when you're in the throes of creating your own show, you probably don't have time to listen to many, many others. I actually, I mean, it's funny. I hear other podcasters say, I don't listen to very many podcasts, um, but I listen to a ton. I listen to podcasts all day long. Um, basically, whenever I have to do something uh, where I could be listening to a podcast, like driving or doing the dishes or chores around the house, I almost always have yeah. a podcast on. And what does your wife think about that? She also is pretty okay. addicted to podcasts. I, I got her into it. So Yeah, my wife's gotten to a couple, but at some point... I have to be careful. It's not at, at, an, at it's when she's like trying to tell me something, <laughs> or, or yeah, or well, not yes. in a in a direct conversation. Because if she catches me, like, did you hear what I just said? Because I, sometimes I do the one ear earbud in, one earbud out. Yeah. Yep. yep. <laughs> so have you listened? Have you started any of the um, listening to the podcast at a higher speed? No, I don't. Although I do use the Overcast yeah, app for the iPhone, too. which does the smart the smart speed, yes. which like just deletes silences, but I only use it for shows that are unedited. If the show's edited, then I don't use it. Yeah. Cause there's a smart speed. So you can see, yeah, I've been doing that. We can speed up, speed it up a little. Um, and if you don't have smart speed, it doesn't, you don't get like that herky jerky sound in there. So, but for right. like, if there's podcasts where they're just fun or if it's a comedic podcast, I'll, I've done it up to two X and you get wow. used to it. <laughs> And then, and, and then when you listen to people talk normally after that, they sound like they're speaking like through molasses or something like that. But, <laughs> but it like changes your brain. It does change your brain and you actually get used to it. You, you can start at one and a quarter, then you go one and a half, then you go, then you go faster. Uh, but it just, it changes the speed, not the pitch. So huh. it's just, and then a, a lot of times I just want to get the information. I don't, I don't need to, it's, it's not like, you know, some of the storytelling ones, you literally have to sit down and do just that. And you're sort of right. doing a disservice to the podcast and to all the, all the hard work you guys do with your editing. If you just blast through it at 2x, it probably just kills the whole experience. Yeah, totally. 
what was the do you remember what was the first podcast you listened to uh it was on the media okay which was the first NPR show that did a yeah. podcast. They actually they got a fair bit of attention. I remember they, they sort of did a segment about podcasting and then announced that they were turning their show into a podcast. And I was like, well, that's interesting. You know, like on demand. I mean, that seems ideal. And so I started listening to their show, but I don't think I had an iPod at the time. So I just downloaded it um, to whatever MP3 player I was using pre-iPod. And then um, for a while, there weren't that many shows that were doing it. And then I think This American Life finally got on yeah. board. And so I started listening to them. And I don't know what the – after that, I th feel like it was pretty rapid that most NPR shows started doing podcasts. And I was, I was working for public radio at the time. And so I started listening to most of my favorite NPR shows as podcasts. And then um, – at this point, I don't even listen to the radio yeah. anymore. I can't remember the last time that I listened to the radio. So there was a discussion uh, in new in one of the newsletters about whether the fact that um, the old radio stations can now just take their content and dump it into iTunes and they can call it a podcast. And so what people are saying is that do they, they now have an unfair advantage because they're sort of crowding out these people who are creating... Um, original programming that's a podcast um, independent podcasters and they're almost saying like there should be another category that says if this is something that came from radio you know just let's put them over there so you because once that happens and they come in and you have the likes of npr come in they sort of take over the top 20 of itunes and seem to be crowding out the other folks yeah i don't know i don't like to me, it's not a question of crowding out. It's a question of, you know, making it easy to find stuff. I think the problem there is not the NPR shows. I think the problem is the whole concept of top lists yeah, and how top lists tend to just be a bad way of uh, making it easy to, to discover things. Whenever there's a top list, you know, the big names always win out. Although actually, frankly, there's a lot of indie shows that have gotten into those top lists lately. Um and so, but I just, I think discovery is probably the hardest problem to crack. And a lot of people are working on that right now. There was a company or an app called Swell. I don't know if you were familiar with it. It was an iPhone app at swell.fm or AM or something like that. And, and they had an, a really good algorithm for searching the iTunes store and Apple bought them. <laughs> and I think it was only live for a couple of months. And so it sort of disappeared huh. into the Apple uh um, Apple Chambers, and and then I think supposedly they're they're taking that technology because that search. I mean, all you really have in Apple is that little search bar in the top right, and it doesn't really help you. <laughs> right, exactly. I mean, what they need is something. You know, Apple just created Apple Music, and the big feature of that is that humans are curating these musical playlists for you. And um, I think that's what we need in podcasting: is more people to curate playlists you know if you like this show you might like this show you know the same way that i mean netflix does things like this with algorithms and movies they've gone through and sort of categorized movies with all these you know genres and subgenres. and i feel like somebody needs to do that with podcasts um and really think through uh you know categorizing them because there's just so many different kinds on so many different topics and the easier it is to find them the more people are going to listen to them yeah, there's really good directories. Um, most of them, that's all they are, just a list of podcasts and you submit there in the hope that 
your show gets found. But I think something, uh, I, I think Overcast actually does something similar from what I see. There's some recommendations and supposedly it, it should be yeah. based on what you're listening to. Yes. And it's also based on Twitter. Yes. And what your Twitter, what your Twitter, who you follow on Twitter and what they're listening to. I've, and I've seen the recommend button on there. I still can't figure out what that does because I hit it occasionally and I just don't know what <laughs> happens. I, I actually tweeted Marco Arment who created it, but he didn't respond. Yeah, um, but, he's a busy guy. <laughs> so you start, but you started out as a writer. Well, yeah, I mean, I went to grad school for creative yeah. writing um, and I was going to write fiction. And then while I was in grad school, I uh, answered an, uh, a job offering from Garrison Keillor's show, The Writer's Almanac, um, and wound up working for them. And that's how I got into radio, was just writing scripts for that show. And then uh, you mentioned you were, uh, I heard your interview with Dan Lizette on the Podcast Digest, and you mentioned you were a fan of uh, Memory Palace. Yes. Which, which is one of the first ones that I heard that wasn't like a tip, typical <clears throat> podcast. For me, podcasts used to mean music because I was a DJ, and I thought a podcast was just a collection of songs. Until and then I discovered some of the entrepreneurial stuff, and I stumbled upon Memory Palace, which was unlike anything I had ever heard before. When it was just awesome, it was so short and so um, personal. Well, yeah. What I mean, what struck me about Memory Palace, I didn't know about it um, when I was working at Writers Almanac, but while I was at Writers Almanac, uh, Garrison. Traditionally, the way the Writers Almanac had worked was that he would just have a producer. Uh, you know, figure out who was born on that day and find some interesting nuggets and maybe a couple quotes from that person um, or those people. And when I started working there, he said that one of the things he wanted to do was to have more history on mm -hmm. the show and to just tell like little historical stories. Like if George Washington was inaugurated on this day, you know, find out what happened. Like, what was he wearing? What, what, you know, who was in the audience? You know, like do like a historical sketch and so I started writing little things like that. And he, and he would read what I wrote and it would be, you know, one or two minutes long, but I would really work on it. You know, like I'd really try to paint a picture. And then I thought, you know, why isn't there a history show on public radio like this that, you know, I mean, it, history is so much harder to do on television. And yet PBS is always trying to do these historical documentaries that with all these cheesy, you know, people in costumes and, you know, it's, it's hard to do, but on the radio, it's easy to do because you don't have to have those pictures. You can just tell a story. And I remember talking to somebody about this and he said, have you heard of the memory palace? And I was like, no. And so then I went and listened and I was like, oh, that guy's doing it, you know? So, yeah. Well, now there's some really good podcasts. A friend of mine I had on recently, Liz Kovart, she's got a podcast called Benjamin Franklin's World. She's doing really well with it, and I don't know if you heard, but Spotify is getting into the podcasting game, so they're testing it out with some of the um, podcasts that host with this company called Libsyn, and hers was recently picked up. Um, she just uses that as the framing point. I think it's the time that he lived, and she talks about a wide variety of topics, but it's incredibly popular. And hmm. uh, I, I, I listened to another one recently. It's called Shadow of Ideas, and there was a three-part series just on the origins of the Civil War, and I think they started it because of the controversy that was coming around at, because of the Confederate flag that was happening across the country. And it, anyone who tries to uh, frame the, 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 um, the argument that says the Civil War wasn't about slavery, well, they sort of put that to bed because the th in this three-part series, they literally tell you like 
from the beginning why it was about slavery and how throughout the whole civil war it was strictly about slavery and and i had learned it in in school but not to the level of detail um they that they provided in this series which i think was awesome huh um one other thing one one thing that i heard that i thought was interesting was um the story you had about one of the first people to suggest to you that you go into podcasting yeah so I, I love telling the story because at the time I had no idea who I was really talking to. I mean, what's funny is, okay, so I went to this conference called the Public Radio Producers Conference, and um, I was actually there to pitch an idea for a new radio show, and I pitched this this sort of history radio show, except my idea was to talk about the origins of things, um, to have a history show that just kind of looked at where did this thing come from, and um but that I also wanted to tell the story of how those things impacted people. So I pitched this idea, and it didn't really go anywhere. But then that night, I was out with people uh, at the conference, and one of the people I was out with was saying, you know, if you want to get in, uh, if you want to get your stories out in the world, you should try podcasting because uh, you can just make it and put it out there, and if it's good, people will come to you instead of you having to sell your ideas to them. And I was like, yeah, maybe I'll do that. I don't know. And I didn't really follow up on it. And that guy was Roman Mars. Um, and what's funny is I actually, I mean, I knew he was a talented guy at the time. He he had done a podcast called Invisible Inc. Um, before he did 99% Invisible. And it was a podcast about, I guess it was actually maybe a radio show um, out of KCRW or or somewhere over there in San Francisco where he would interview people who wrote zines and I had stumbled on it and thought it was amazing. And then he moved over to third coast um, and worked for them for a while. But at this point, I think he was kind of freelance and maybe working for snap judgment. Um, But I had no idea what he would become. And so then when uh, radiotopia burst onto the scene, that was when the moment when I thought, Oh, I probably should have followed that guy's (laughs) advice. <laughs> he might know what he's talking about. Yeah, exactly. he was at this conference. We originally came back. You might have probably seen a bunch of tweets about podcast movement. Um, they completely changed and improved the conference from last year because it was very entrepreneurial. And this year, they just had the gamut. They had the entrepreneurial folks, but they had the storytelling folks. And Roman Mars gave a keynote, and Mark Marin gave a keynote, and there were breakout sessions with the Kitchen Sisters with. Uh, um, Leah Tao from Strangers, and it was just so well rounded. Um, I think it was, it was really good because you could. There's actually people there who didn't have a podcast and were just fans, which typically in these types of conferences is people that want to learn something. They just getting started with their podcast, or they've been doing it, and um, they want to show other people how to do it, or just learn some more advanced stuff. And I thought this was interesting that people I was asked, I was talking to one girl um, with with Leah and she's and she was asking do you have a podcast she's like no I just I'm a really big fan and I just came to hear you speak which I, I thought was which I thought was amazing <laughs> yeah yeah and uh, do you do you but the types of conferences that you go to because you mentioned uh, Third Coast right yeah well so the year that I went to public radio producers conference was one of the years where Third Coast is every okay. other year um, and, but that year they did sort of a mini third coast at the producers conference. Um, so I kind of got like a, like a taste of what third coast would be like, but I've never actually gone to third coast. 
But do, what is it just for a certain type of uh, uh, podcast or radio? Well, the way Third Coast is designed is they they call it the um, the Sundance Film Festival of audio, and so it's kind of a place for all the people who consider audio uh, kind of an art form. Um, so there's people making documentaries, there's, there's, you know, journalists, but there's also people making, you know, sound art, um, and they try to get a wide gamut of people, but it's definitely more in the, uh, you know, the art, the artistic creative side of radio making and audio making, um, as opposed to, uh, you know, the entrepreneurial kind of stuff. Like it's, it's treating audio as, its own art form and, and looking at different ways of doing that. When's uh, that sounds interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that I need one more conference on my calendar. Uh, cause my wife's <laughs> going to kill me at this point. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, it, what's, what's a funny experience with those things and you may have experienced it as well is that you really are with your tribe when you're there. And we all start talking about the same things at this this one this past weekend about download numbers and microphones you use, and, and I'm sure the same things happen when writers go to a writers conference or radio folks go to a, a radio conference. Um, do you, do you feel like it's important that we occasionally go out and associate and, and try to find people that are of of our our background or of our ilk, so that we feel more at home and we feel like we're not so crazy sometimes? I think so. I mean, what I found, I mean, I really only spent one night at that conference. I, they, they paid for me to go cause they had picked my idea for a radio story. And, um, I flew in, you know, that morning and took a train in and then I gave my talk, uh, that afternoon. And then I got to spend that night hanging out with radio folks, but it was one of the best nights of my life. I mean, I had so much fun and it felt like everybody was so kind and I remember talk, there was a guy there who I kept in touch with on Facebook for a little while. And I remember him saying, this is not what mo- most conferences are like. <laughs> he said, most conferences, everybody's trying to schmooze. And a lot of people are annoyed that they're being schmoozed <laughs> with, you know, like uh, everybody here is so kind. And I definitely felt that way. I don't know if the big third coast feels that way or if it will feel that way in the future, but um, they definitely felt like my kind of people, and I immediately got along with everybody that I talked to, and it was amazing. You've sort of replicated that now with the collective that you guys have put together, The Herd, right? Yes, yeah. We've sort of created our band of, uh, you know... Um, Brothers and sisters. <laughs> yes, yeah, compatriots. Even though we haven't met. Um, a few of us have met, but mo- you know, the majority of us have not met each other. We we're only friends through the internet, so... Yeah, and you were saying one of the, uh, you guys use a tool called Slack, which is uh, anyone like, who's into technology loves that tool. <laughs> yes, yes. But you were saying yeah. one of the favorite, cha- your favorite channels was the, um, the, the feedback or the wins, I think you were saying? The Celebrate, Celebrate yeah. channel. Yeah, we're always, you know, whenever somebody gets some recognition, because I mean, so for anybody who's not familiar with the herd, I don't, I can't remember, did Vanessa talk about the I, herd? I, yeah, I mentioned it a little bit, show? but yeah, you can, you can explain it as well. But it's basically, you know, six uh, independent podcasters. We decided to band together because um, it can be lonely being a podcaster. And uh, it's uh, so there's Vanessa's show is Nocturne. 
Jacob's show, uh, Jacob Lewis has a show called Neighbors. Um, Tally Abacassis out of uh, Montreal has a show called First Day Back. Uh, there's a woman, Marlo Mack, has a show called How to Be a Girl. And uh, Jonathan Hirsch has a show called Arrivals. Um, and we've all been getting recognition over the last few months since we joined together. Some of us have gotten some recognition before that, but, you know, just podcast newsletters and podcast publications like discovering our shows. And, and every time one of those things happens, we post it in the celebrate channel so that we, you know, I mean, cause it's weird how even if you post an episode, so like I had an episode come out yesterday and you put it out and you watch your download numbers go up. Um, and it's, you know, thousands of people have downloaded this episode. Maybe they've listened to it. I don't know. A few will tweet at you on Twitter. Um, but for the most part, it, you don't know what people thought of it. And so to have this place where we're supporting each other and we're listening to each other's shows and telling each other that we're doing great work, it's just really like affirming. And it feels like we're part of a community. Um, I mean, sort of like how like artists in, you know, like Greenwich Village in the 1950s would like band together and support each other and give each other feedback. Like it feels more like an artist's collective or community than, you know, like a podcast network, which feels more like a business. It's more like we're there to support each other as opposed to, you know, uh, conquer the world or something. Although we also want to do that. <laughs> Baby steps. So when you, when, yeah. when you think about it, because okay, when you think about a collective, you get this like, sort of this vision on your head of um maybe not hippies but <laughs> it's that sort of concept where you all meet and like you said with artists that you could have these parties together and and not feel like you're going crazy because you're the only one that's as passionate about the thing that you do um and, and you're able to commiserate and, and like you said share your wins which i think if you don't have an outlet for that you, you'll probably tend to go crazy sitting in the, in the basement trying to find creative ways to make your room sound as soundproof as possible <laughs> Right. Yeah. Well, and I mean, for me, um, I mean, it's funny. So my show is called Anxious Machine and uh, the word anxious comes up a lot for me. I actually, uh, I don't know if I suffer from like a, like a specific anxiety disorder, but anxiety is a theme that runs through my life and has for a while. And I think that like you say, you know, like it makes you sane. Um, I think that, you know, having these other people telling me that like I'm doing good work saves me from the, you know, the late night jitters that like, oh, maybe my, maybe my work is crap, you know, like maybe nobody thinks this is interesting at all. And, and so to have those people there telling me, no, no, actually you're, you're, you're doing a good job. Like it means, it means the world to me. And do you feel a, a responsibility or I'm not sure if responsibility is the right word, but do you feel like a challenge to yourself as the show gets more popular and, um, as you get better um, feedback on the quality of the episodes, that you've got to work harder to find even better storytellers? Yeah, you know, that's a good question. Because so when I started the show, I was really starting it more as a hobby. Like, I mean, I have a, I've got a full-time job teaching writing at a college. Um, and I don't necessarily, I mean, I don't make a ton of money at my job. I, it's a small technical college, but I didn't really start the show like as a way to replace my, my employment. It was just like, I used to love doing this. I used to love making radio. And what I saw was a lack, you know, I saw that there were all these, 
technology shows that there was a, uh, a desire in the public to listen to shows about technology, but that, in my opinion, what they were missing was stories about technology. They were missing sort of the human element of technology. Um, and so I thought, well, you know, I could take this hobby, this thing that I like doing, I like making radio, and I could try making a show where I'm talking to people about technology in this more personal way. And I wasn't super ambitious about it. I just sat down, like the first two, first interview I did was with my older brother. And I just talked to him about cars because he loves cars. And he started stealing my parents' car when he was 14. And, uh, and then, you know, continued to steal it even after he got arrested for stealing it. And just, and then went on to work as a valet and now works for Domino's Pizza. And just, if he could, he would just drive all day long. He just loves driving. So he has this crazy relationship with his car. And then I, I, I continued doing interviews like that where it was just, you know, what's your technology? What's the thing that affects you? And then around episode, I think it was episode six, I interviewed this guy, Stephen Hackett, who has, he has a, a number of his own podcasts. Um, or he, he, well, he works for the podcast network Relay. Uh, and he, his son was diagnosed with brain cancer when he was like six months old. And, um, and he just told me this incredible story about what it was like to go through you know, the medical treatment of his son. And after that episode, I just felt like I couldn't go back to just a regular conversation, you know? Like I felt like every episode needs to have that kind of drama because that episode was just so powerful. And so since then I have, like I've looked for more and more dramatic stories um, where it's not just like, this is a technology I use and this is how I use it, but like, this is how this technology has changed my life. Um, so like I did an episode about a woman whose uh, daughter was born prematurely and what it was like to be in that neonatal intensive care unit with all these machines keeping her daughter alive. I did an episode about a guy who um, he became obsessed with airplanes when he was a kid because his parents, he would fly back and forth uh, between Egypt and Kuwait when he was a kid. And then he moved to the United States and he couldn't afford to fly anymore. And so he was really sad about that. And then he figured out that if he got a job at an airline, he could fly whatever he wanted. And so he like got himself a job at Delta Airlines and now he flies all over the world. So I look for those kinds of stories where technology isn't just sort of incidental, but actually kind of transformative in a person's life. And I, and I also, I mean, I'm also trying harder and harder to think about like the meaning of that technology and maybe look at the origin of that technology and kind of bring in those bigger ideas as well. Yeah, one of the interesting episodes was the I was deprived where the juxtaposition of the the girl who had no access to the phone and the girl who uh, had, I think, gave her child complete access. And at one point, I, I remember, I think I heard that her, she gave her daughter a phone or at f age four. That was an interesting episode because I did those interviews completely separately and I thought they would be separate episodes and then when I was sitting down to work on it, I had recently been listening to, do you listen to the podcast Love and Radio? I've listened to a couple of episodes, yeah. And I, what I, inspires me about that show is, so there's a, you know, in the radio world, there's a genre of uh, storytelling called non-narrated storytelling, which is where the interviewer cuts all their questions out. Um, so you only hear the other person's voice. And so it sounds like a monologue, even though it's not. And what 
Love and Radio does is they don't do non-narrated stories, but they almost always leave out narration. What they don't... So how, how do I explain this? They leave in the questions that the interviewer asked, but they don't use narration as like a hand-holding technique. So there's nobody saying they're like, I sat down with so-and-so to talk about such-and-such. They just plunge you into the conversation and you have to kind of figure out what's going on. And I, th I found that really inspiring. And so with that episode, I suddenly thought, what if instead of me you know, commentating on, these, on this person's story, what if I take two people who have two different, and then they're like the thing that the one person says will sort of comment on what the other person says, you know, and like if I can lay them next to each other, then they have these different um, meanings. And so I just went through the one woman who was homeschooled and she had no access to technology. I went through and I chopped her story up. And then the other woman who grew up in a house where she had as much access to TV as she wanted, and then she had a son when she was in high school and she gave him as much access to he TV as he wanted. And I kind of chopped her story up and figured out ways to lay them next to each other uh, so that they would kind of ricochet off each other. And I found that really fun to do. Yeah, that came out really well. And in a way, part of it was a bit, I don't know if aggravating is the right word, but for the parent that just gave her child full reign, she seemed incredibly ignorant about the pervasiveness of the phone like she thought well if he has you know if i give my child the phone they're only going to use it to call me like ignoring the, the natural curiosity of a child to try and press every single button and and call everyone and play every game that he's not supposed to play so when they're or like when the child was playing call of duty and she didn't realize that that was an incredibly violent game <laughs> and she <laughs> well yeah i mean what's what's the one criticism that I got on that episode was that by not narrating it, um, I was sort of letting you make your judgment about these these people. And my fear with that, and I f hearing you say this make, makes me think that my fear is partly uh, correct, is that people listening to her would would feel like judgmental about her parenting. And my hope was that by the end of the episode, you would realize like what what a difficult life situation she was in, in that, you know, being a single mother um, with, you know, low income and, you know, not being aware, like not even knowing what Call of Duty is, you know, like um, that I sort of I sort of wish that I could have done it in a way that it was very clear that I certainly don't judge her her parenting, I think she was thrown into a situation where she's trying to figure out how technology fits into her children's lives as she went along. And I think by the end of the episode, she's talking about the fact that she's realized she needs to be more conscious of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, definitely, she definitely, I mean, early on in her son's life, she just let him watch as much TV and play as many video games as, as, as he wanted to, because she just didn't have the energy to figure anything else out. I, I did get the sense towards the end, because I remember that, that she, I, I actually felt compassion for her. Because I, I think, like you said in the beginning, you're like, what is, how is this woman raising a child? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do, so I, I wonder if, if something happens to you, when you have these types of interviews, especially when they're, they're, your subjects have children, if there's something in the back of your mind that's thinking, well, I sure don't want to 
screw up like this when I'm from with my children or do you do your kids come into into the picture or into your thought process somewhere in terms of technology well in terms of in, in this example right access or no access to technology i imagine your child will probably be somewhere in between um you know the where your two guests were yeah you know it's interesting that um I mean, that's, I feel like that's a daily struggle for almost every parent I know, um, is figuring out how much access to technology to give your kids because we, modern parents feel, have been told that screens are bad for their kids. And yet screens are what our kids want, you know, um, if, if given, endless access to it, it seems like they would take as much screen time as we would give them. Um, and yet I read an article by this uh, writer, Hannah Rosen, I actually referenced this article in my latest episode um, called The Touchscreen Generation, where she talks about, uh, she talks to a psychologist, I think it's a psychologist, who says, you know, let your son, her, I think her son was four at the time. He said, let your son play with the iPad as much as he wants. Put it in his basket of toys and tell him it's just another toy and see if he gets tired of it. And she was scared and she told, but she did the experiment and she told him, you know, you can play with this as much as you want. And he was like, as much as I want? And she said, yeah. <laughs> and the first few days he played with it almost nonstop. And then he kind of got tired of it just like he would with any other toy. And um, so I don't know. I go back and forth. Honestly, I don't think that screens have any negative effect on kids' brains. I think they have negative effect on their bodies. You know, like I want my kids to get exercise. Yeah. And when they're sitting with the iPad for too long, they get like neck aches. I mean, <laughs> you like we have to remind them to stand up and stretch. I mean, it's the same way. Like if you type on your laptop on your couch for two hours, like you're going to have back strain, you know? Um, so I, I, I don't know. I don't, I, ch we, we definitely limit their screen time, but if it were up to me, I think I would limit it less than maybe my wife would. Do you, how old are your kids? They are, uh, almost 11 and almost nine. Do they listen to your show? They've listened to most of the episodes. There are some episodes that I've told them are for grownups only. Um, but most of the episodes, and they actually, they really enjoy the show. They like it a lot and, and they, they both want to be on it. <laughs> I've heard some, uh, some other podcasters at some point, they, they have their kids say something at the end of the show or something like that. So maybe yes, that'll happen. Yeah. How hard is it to keep the room silent? Well, the, I mean, the thing I struggle with, uh, is recording the narration. Um, I do most of the interviews away from the house um, but the narration I record in my basement and I have to turn off the furnace. I have to turn off the air conditioner. I have to make sure my wife's not doing any laundry. And then, uh, I try to do it when the house is empty. Um, and if I, if I can't, then I just tell everybody, you know, sit still for 10 minutes while daddy records narration. Um, so yeah, my hope is someday to like get one of those like sheds in the backyard that I could insulate, um, and do it out there. But that's a dream. So for the folks who are just listening and can't see us, how would you describe that uh, technology you're using behind your head? <laughs> so I have a, it's like a, a room divider 
that we got a long time ago, and I've draped a sleeping bag over it as sort of a uh, you know a sound absorber. And then I also have a a homemade um, I think it's called a baffle. Uh, it's like a box with foam mattress uh, stuffed inside it that I put in front of the microphone as another uh, sort of sound absorbing device. Is it like one of those diffuser things where the different lengths of foam are used? So, yeah. Yeah. Have you experimented with different um, methods of sound dampening? Is this, is this the best one so far? It's the best one. And actually, I mean, the microphone that I use, I use a, uh, a Rode Podcaster. It's pretty good at isolating. It's so good, in fact, at isolating sound that if I don't talk directly into the microphone, it just doesn't pick up very much of anything. So, yeah. One of the comments that you made is, is you said you started out as a writer, um, but one of the things that you enjoyed was actually reading the stories that you wrote in front of people. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I've always, you know, when I was a kid, I wanted to be an actor. Uh, that was the first sort of real ambition that I had. And then I briefly wanted to be a stand-up comedian. Um, and then I wanted to be a writer. And I feel like that desire for the stage has always kind of been uh, paramount for me. Um, and I still, like, I would I would love to do my show in front of an audience. Like, I love getting that like seeing the reaction of people. It's the one thing that, um, you know, being a, being a podcaster, you don't get to see people listening to it. I would love to watch people listening to my show. Um, because, and I also, I mean, what, one of the things that I've been working on lately is, uh, you know, for most of my shows, I write a little bit of script and I read it. And I don't like the way it sounds when people read script. Um, there are certain shows, I think, you know, the Memory Palace is an example where he, every show is just him reading a script. And that's about as long as I can take someone reading a script is the length of his show. Like, I just don't like listening to people read and I don't like listening to me read. And so one of the things that I've started working on is talking my script instead of reading it. And so for the latest episode, I actually stood up in, you know, where I'm sitting right now, I stood up and position the microphone so that I could just stand there and talk at my microphone as if I were on a stage instead of reading what I'd written. And I think it came out sounding more natural. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if I answered yeah, that question. No, I, I've, I've done that as well, because since we, we have the, the boom arms, it can just move it up and down. And I've, yeah. given, I've had interviews before where I've had to, I've had a stand for my laptop, and I was able to, because I have to lift my laptop sometimes because I have some stuff I look up uh, during interviews, but... I think the way I've, I've heard it described is that your diaphragm opens up when you stand up and, yeah. you know, you can, your voice just sounds differently. It's like how they tell you, like, before you're about to get on a podcast, just like smile or laugh out loud just to kind of get the vocal cords moving, just different things. Because otherwise, if, like you said, I mean, I think maybe if you just sit in a chair for too long, it's sort of the the vocal equivalent of what happens when the, the child is humped over the iPad, right? <laughs> your well, voice... Yeah, and I think, you know, when you're when I'm sitting in my basement in front of a microphone, especially if my kids are asleep upstairs, my instinct is to whisper into my microphone, which can sound unbearably pretentious, you know? <laughs> and, you know, it's like, "Oh, this is what happened and then this happened." And it's it's terrible. Yeah. And whereas if I'm standing up, it's like you have a different personality when you're standing up. I like I think about it when you're at a party, Sometimes you're standing in a kitchen having a conversation. Exactly. 
And sometimes you're sitting in the living room having a conversation. I feel like you have different conversations when you're standing in the kitchen. And I sort of want my podcast to sound more like that conversation in the kitchen than the conversation in the living room. I think uh, it's it's a function of podcasting. We never like to hear what our first episode sounds like. Because you know? <laughs> <laughs> we're like, oh, man. And then everyone, all podcasters say it. So anyone who's a podcaster know, knows and can relate to it. But I think it's important that we realize that we're just continued, we're continuing to get better as we do this. And I think it's important that our episodes, our past episodes are out there because any new people that are coming on board will say, no, you see, it's not perfect. And, you know, Rob didn't sound like this when he started and his narration (laughs) skills were different when he started or Harry, you know, sounded really nervous when he started and and was asking formulaic questions. (laughs) And uh, I think it's important because it's just, it shows that we're, um, you're growing as a, a podcast host. Yeah. Which what is was, funny because I took my my early episodes off my off my feed, <laughs> but you did put some of your radio episodes on. I did, yeah, some of my old radio stories. Was that the best, the cream of the crop? Then they were my three favorite radio stories. Yeah, but you were about to say something. Yeah, I was wondering. Um, you said you wanted to. You had thoughts of being an actor or a comedian, and, and I, I I wonder when when people say that, a lot of times they have a memory of someone who was on TV who just, you know, they saw a performance and they said, wow, that's what I want to do. Did, did that happen with you with acting? Um, I don't know. You know, it's funny. When I was a little kid, a lot of people told me that I looked like Ricky Schroeder. I don't know if you remember Ricky Schroeder. Oh, yeah. He was on a TV show called Silver Spoons. Um, but that, he, his acting didn't impress me. Um the champ. Uh, the, yeah. I don't know. You know, honestly, I think it was because I just got picked to be the star of the play starting in second grade through sixth grade. And I just loved being on stage. I thought it was amazing. And um, and I think, honestly, part of the reason I was getting picked was that I was I have a good memory and I can memorize the lines easily. And so I think the teachers, I think the teachers were picking who was going to be the parts and um, but I also, I mean, I enjoyed being on stage. Uh, you know, there wasn't, I wasn't that interested in acting as an art form. I just enjoyed being on stage, but starting with, with comedy, I mean, I became a real comedy fan in sixth grade. And the sad thing is, I mean, my favorite comedian at the time was probably Bill Cosby, who now has just completely, <laughs> yeah, oh, wow. yeah. But I love, what I loved about Bill Cosby was how, he wasn't he wasn't a typical comedian in the joke telling style that he was just telling stories. I loved the stories that he told um so maybe uh, you gravitated more towards storytelling comedians exactly yeah and and I also loved George Carlin and his you know the way that he would analyze language um I would say that they were two, the the two that I owned you know several cassette tapes of their of their stuff. Um, and I also watched a lot of comedy on television and then it wasn't until high school that I started writing seriously. Um, and it's interesting because one of the things I've been thinking about lately is the way that I find a lot of my stories is I find kind of an ordinary person who has some dramatic story. And I think about, you know, writers like, um, I believe that, uh, 
uh, you know, Madame Bovary um, by Gustave Flaubert, I believe was based on, uh, he got the idea from a newspaper article about a woman who'd committed suicide after being discovered having an affair and getting into some legal trouble. And he, and he read the article and then he imagined this whole woman's life. And one of the things that I've been thinking about lately with podcasting is that, you know, as someone who used to write fiction, like I could, you know, hear this person's story and then transmute that story into a work of fiction. But instead what I'm doing is I'm sort of taking the raw material and turning the raw material itself, like this person telling me their story, I'm taking that, the recording of that story and turning that into the, the work of art. So it's like, I'm not, I'm not taking that, you know, that extra step of making it into fiction. I'm just actually letting it be what it is. And, uh, in some ways, I think that's sort of lazy, you know, like I don't have to do the hard work of, of telling that story myself. But I also think it's, it's sort of amazing. I mean, one of the things that's amazing about um, audio is that people feel comfortable enough because they're not on camera, that they're willing to let you into their private life and tell you their private stories. And so you get this incredible intimacy with this dramatic thing that happened to this person. Um, and I love capturing that and crafting that so that it, you know, rings as true as it, uh, and as dramatically as it can. So, yeah. It takes some level of trust for them, I imagine, to get to the point where they feel like they can open up with you. Yeah. I mean, that's something that I've long, I mean, I feel I'm one of those people that, um, you know, I had tons of different kinds of friends when I was growing up. Like I would rarely, I didn't really have a click in high school. I would just be friends with individuals. And like most of the time that I would spend with them would be one-on-one. And I used to talk on the phone all the time uh, to mostly girls, you know, like, like they wouldn't date me, but they would tell me all their stories. And, uh, and I feel like, I don't know if it's something about me or something about the way that I listen or the way that I ask questions, but people feel pretty comfortable opening up to me. And I also, I don't have any desire to do like a, a gotcha style of journalism. Like I'm not trying to make anybody look bad. And so I don't know. Yeah. I mean, people are, are willing to tell me their stories and, and I just feel lucky. One of the things you said is uh, it's ordinary, ordinary people telling dramatic stories. And I wonder if people with dramatic stories who are ordinary think that their story is that dramatic. And, <laughs> and, is, and, and if it's your response, you know, if it's, you know, sometimes they tell it and they're like, and then it's other people telling them, that's a fantastic story. You should tell, you should tell that story more often. Um, so I wonder when you're speaking to them, at, by the time it's, it's gotten to you, it's because it's a dramatic story and then you have to, do you do anything consciously um, in terms of guiding them in how they tell it or you just let them tell it and then later on with the editing, you piece it together to have its desired effect? It's a little of both. I mean, I feel like part of the, part of what I'm trying to do is listen for what's dramatic about it while they're telling it to me so that I can ask the right questions to take them in the right direction. Um, and also try to help them. I mean, sometimes it almost feels like therapy. Like I'm trying to help them 
make connections that they hadn't already made. You know, like, um, I'm trying to think of an example of, uh, you know, one of the shows that I've done. Um, but the one that's coming to mind is one that I haven't actually produced yet. And it was this guy who, when he was growing up, his father uh, would force him to fight other kids. Like his father would like take him to the playground. And if some kid was kind of picking on him, his father would be like, you need to go fight that kid right now. Like he would like force him to fight him. And, and then his father left the family, like just walked out one day and never came back. And the kid grew up and actually became a mixed martial arts fighter and got pretty good at it. He didn't, uh, he didn't succeed, but he got pretty good at it. And, but at some point he realized that, um, he had, he'd essentially gone into mixed martial arts fighting against his mother's wishes. He'd left home, moved to Texas and was living this lifestyle, you know, with these fighters that his mother didn't really agree with and decided, uh, that he needed to go back home and be near his mom. And I said, so it's like you left, like your dad left, except that you went back home. And he was like, oh my God, you just completely blew my mind. <laughs> it never occurred to me before. <laughs> and so like, I try to listen for things like that where I can help them understand what's interesting about their story or even just telling them that their story is interesting, like will sometimes open people up. Um, so it's partly that, but then it's also partly the editing and thinking, you know, so, uh, one of the things that I'll do is after I've done an interview, I'll put it on my phone as just a complete interview and I'll drive around and listen to it. And at, after listening to it two or three times, I can start to hear like the shape of the story and know what I want to cut and what I want to keep and what I want to, you know, write, you know, in between those pieces. Um, so it's a little of everything. The other it was, it seems that there's another story you had that was, had the overarching theme of, uh, bad parenting, I guess you'd call it <laughs> <laughs> with all my days have been guns. Yes. Yeah. That was, uh, that was a really interesting story. Um, because th- so that the, the person that I interviewed there, he was, he had, was a student of mine, um, three or four years ago, he was in my composition class. The, the and, subject of that story. Yeah. Wow. Um, and, uh, his name is Bernard. And what it, I, I think just, uh, I don't want to cut you off, but I, I want the listener to go listen to the story. So I, I, you don't have to tell, you don't have to tell the story here. We can just touch on it because I think it's important. Um, especially that one that we sort of let it play out because that's just the beauty of these things. Right. I, I was doing the same thing with Vanessa. I was like, no. we were dancing around yeah, yeah. this story because I want to, um, people to know about it, but I also want people to be in, in, incented to, uh, to go actually listen. So, Well, I, ha- I have my students, one of my writing uh, assignments is they have to write about the worst job they ever had. And uh, he wrote this story about working for his father in his father's gas station. And it was just this crazy story. And then over the course of the semester, he let me in on some more details of his life. And I was like, man, you've lived some life. And he was like, yeah, I've actually thought about writing a book about my life. And so I just, you know, like I was aware of that. And then, you know, six months ago, I bumped into him because he's back in school 
And I said, hey, you remember how you told me that you wanted to write a book about your life? Well, I've got this interview show and I would love to interview you. And he was like, yeah, I'll do it. So that's how that story came. But what, you were going to ask me something about, about that episode or I don't remember. No, I think it was just the, the other story you mentioned had something to do with, uh, father, with you know, fathers. With fathers. Yeah. What's interesting with the All My Days Have Been Guns is his, his voice is almost like another character in yeah. the story. It's yeah. just really gravelly. And I think that was, in a way, uh, not that it was a, a turning point for the podcast for me, but it was just one where it just, the common, it's sort of like, I feel like everything with that story just gelled. Hmm. Um, and I was, it was riveting from uh, beginning to end. So that was a good job there. <laughs> yeah, I love that episode and I love his voice. I completely agree with you. I mean, I felt like it was just a gift. Everything that was coming out of his mouth it was, it was, I mean, he talks almost like a poet. Um, I mean, just the, you know, the title of that show, All My Days Have Been Guns, I mean, comes out of this part at the end where he's just talking about his relationship to guns, which is, you know, the technology of that episode. And it just, I mean, it almost sounds like a poem. It was amazing. Um, but what's interesting too is it, it's fascinating to me how many of my episodes, ha I mean, my show is about technology, but how many of my episodes are about relationships between generations that it, a lot of shows have to do with relationships between children and parents, even when it's not explicit. I mean, that episode about the guy um, who's obsessed with planes, like he, you know, his parents, he was flying with his parents back and forth between these two countries or the episode about, you know, the mother with the daughter in the NICU or the episode um, there's an episode with uh, a woman who loses her hearing and one of the people who makes fun of her uh, for being deaf is her mother. I mean, it, it's weird how many of these, how often that comes up. I mean, maybe that's just because that's life, but uh, yeah. I don't know. I think at one point you said the shows that is about the, it's about, it's about the topics which make us human. And I think I, like you said, you focus in the beginning on technology, but then now it's more, really wide open because it's just like the name of your show now and you could almost talk about anything about it and i think just the name says it well anxious machine because there's the anxiety built-in anxiety that comes into play when you think about us living in this machine yeah i mean yeah one of the things i've been thinking a lot about is how um i mean i think the show i've just i've decided to define technology as anything humans invent and that's really everything, you know? I mean, almost everything we do is something that we've invented. I mean, very little, you know, there's eating and sleeping and, you know, having sex. Uh, but even aspects of those things are things we've invented, you know? And so I, you're right. I feel like I could take on almost anything, but I, I like that lens because it makes it sort of anthropological. Um, and then I, the other thing that I like about having chosen this as a topic is that, you know, I, I actually, I studied comparative literature uh, as my undergrad degree. And the way that you study literature in comparative literature, that's different from like English literature is that you're supposed to trace a theme through several works of literature. So for example, you might take something like, um, I don't know, the theme of people selling their soul to the devil, 
which is something that comes up in numerous works of literature. So you could take like a play and a movie and a novel and say, this is how this one treats that and, and this is how this one does it and this is how this one does it. And I sort of feel like what I do on my show is I take a theme of a certain technology and I try to trace it through that person's life. So, you know, what was the first time this person used a gun? And then the next time, and then the next time. What was the first time this person touched a computer? And then the next time, and then the next time. What was the, and I feel like you could do that if you choose the right thing. What's interesting is that we, we're living in a time where those things are changing, you know, as, as we're changing. And so the first time you touch a computer, you're a certain age, but also computers are a certain age. And then the next time you've grown older, so your, your life is a little bit different, but also computers are a little bit different. And so I'm, I'm fascinated by the relationships between those two things that are changing, the human and the technology. Are there still stories in you that are your anxious machine story? You mean stories from my own life? Yeah. <laughs> well, that actually, I mean, so the the episode that I released, I don't know when this interview will go live, but the episode that I released- A week or two. A week or two? Yeah. So the episode I released on August 3rd, I'm calling the end of season two of my show. Yeah. And the only reason I'm making that divide is I like the, I like the six, I like the number six <laughs> as a cluster of episodes. And I'm not really slowing down. I'm I'm plunging forward into season three. And one of the things that I want to do with season three is explore more of my own life because it's fun to interview people. And I still am going to incorporate interviews with other people. But I also want to do more sort of documentary style stories. And so I kind of want to turn my gaze towards the things around me um, and tell the story of, you know, like... My wife recently had to buy a new computer. And so I, I interviewed her and recorded the process of her setting up her new computer. So that, that's an example. I also recently, recently went on vacation uh, with my family. And I was thinking about like, God, it's kind of weird how humans go on vacation, right? Like, um, you know, we often go to these more rural places with more trees around us. And we often do more primitive things like try to catch fish or like burn fire, you know? And so I recorded that whole process. And so I've started to think about things that I can look at in my own life and kind of do an anthropological uh, kind of analysis of. Um, and so I want to incorporate that kind of thing into it. And actually, one of the ideas that I had, I'm not sure if I'm going to go through with this, but um, you know, there's this uh, somewhat infamous food replacement called Soylent. Are you familiar with Soylent? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and, Tim Ferriss did like a two-week test on it. Yeah, I've I've been thinking about doing a an episode where I try Soylent because I've always had sort of a problematic relationship to food, um, and I've always secretly sort of wished I could give up food. Like, you know, in on the Jetsons, like they take pills instead of eating food. And when I was a kid, I was like, oh, that would be so much easier. You know, like maybe food should just be for special occasions, and then the rest of the time we could just you know take a pill. And so I've thought about doing kind of a, an episode about my relationship to food and eating and cooking uh, and try out Soylent as part of that, but we'll see how that goes. How would you describe your relationship to food? Uh, I, you know, it's funny. Um, when, so from the time, 
from when I was a kid until I was about eight, I was, I just felt like a completely normal kid. And then from the time that I was eight until I was about 35, I was overweight. And, uh, and I, I never really felt like being overweight was something that I had any control over. Um, and it was something that I always, you know, felt shame about. And then when I quit my last job, my last job in public radio, um, I actually, one of, one of my goals in quitting my job was to get into shape. And I used my iPhone. Um, I got, you know, a, one of these calorie tracking applications and I started jogging. And the combination of those two things, and I had, you know, I jogged before I had, you know, done, I'd been a fairly active person for most of my life, but I was always like 20 or 30 pounds overweight. And then at that last radio job, I had, you know, I was probably 60 or 70 pounds overweight. And uh, using that application suddenly made me realize that, like, being overweight was really a math problem, that I hadn't been very good at math, and I'd never counted calories, and that suddenly I had this application that would let me do the math, and I lost, you know, like 60 pounds. Um, and felt healthy for the first time in my life. Um, but I, st but even now, like it feels like that process of counting the calories and knowing what I'm putting into my body and what amount of energy I'm using could be even simpler. And like when I go, you know, when I go grocery shopping and I walk past all the food, I mean, and there's studies of this, like People talk about willpower, you know, like, oh, you can lose weight if you just have willpower. But willpower doesn't actually exist. Like, uh, the way that, like, the, they've done studies of people who have lost weight and kept it off. And the way they keep it off is not by having willpower. It's by avoiding. They avoid the foods that tempt them. And I feel like we're surrounded by these foods that tempt us. And so part of what appeals to me, as weird and creepy as Soylent seems, part of what appeals to me about it is the idea of not being around any of that food that would tempt me, you know, cause I still like, I have these bouts of, you know, staying up late. It's basically whenever I stay up late, I eat like, you know, something terrible. And so that's kind of what, what draws me to it. What's your guilty pleasure food wise? Cheese and crackers. I love like the, or the orange one. No, not the no. I was not cheese. I was thinking of the orange cheese, the crackers with the peanut butter. No, not that. The, those just regular yeah, cheese and crackers. I, yeah, I, I mean, I don't like that many different kinds of cheese, but I love like I love a good cheddar and I love good Gruyere. Um, and I could just sit and like read a book or watch TV and like drink cocktails and eat cheese and, like like a good martini and like. A bunch of cheese and crackers. That's what I could just, yeah. So I, I, would, <laughs> I would venture the, to guess that uh, your decision-making capabilities plummet rapidly as you start drinking yeah. more martinis. Yes. It's, maybe that's the problem. It's, it's very true, yes. <laughs> Do you think that whole experience like, has tarnished your experience with food to the extent that that's why you're not a foodie and you, and, and you don't appreciate like the nuances of, you know, steaks and fancy well, I, sushi and all this other stuff. I, I could, I mean, I could be a foodie. Um, I mean, I love going to nice restaurants. My wife and I, you know, when we go out, we almost always go out to a really nice restaurant. Um, 
But to me, what I think, you know, going through that experience of counting calories, I would say that before I went through experience of counting calories, food was just um, something that I ate too much of. And now I feel like food is something that I obsess I obsess about and I feel anxiety about because like if I, when I go into a situation where I don't know how many calories are in the food that I'm eating, it's like, who knows, you know, like I just wish I had control over it, you know, like having control over it suddenly made me, um, it like gave me this new power that I didn't, that I don't want to let go of. And the, the appeal of something like Soylent is like, I would have complete control, you know, like I would know precisely how much, I'm putting in my body every day and I wouldn't have to even make any decisions about anything else, you know, like all that would be taken away and I could just, uh, you know, be, I don't know, like free of that. Up until about day 37 when you're just about to. <laughs> <laughs> I, know, <right? laughs> I don't have high hopes that it's going to be a What you should experience. do is keep the journal of, of your Soylent adventure day 27. <laughs> Fucking soylent, <laughs> and just like uh, and see how how it affects your cognitive abilities. I mean, I, I think it has all the nutrients you need, but I think you would just go crazy. I think we're, we, we there's a reason we have these four or five taste buds on our tongue. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, sixteen and seventy pounds is a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's it. What was weird was I, I my set out to lose the weight that I'd gained. Um, at that job because I gained like, you know, 20 or 30 pounds just at that job. And I wound up losing, uh, you know, twice as much. And um, and then I started this podcast nine months ago and I've gained back about 20 pounds. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah. It's, it's funny because I was, I mean, the, the origins of the question was, you know, the, the, your openness to share aspects of your life um, because you did it with your sister, right? Right, yeah. Which was, um, and for the listeners, you basically shared the history of your sister's uh, drug in drug experimentation. <laughs> and addiction, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I, sh- I mean, and I shared a little bit about myself in that episode, but I mean, one of the things that I'm aware of is that... Um, I mean, it's funny. I go back and forth on this. I feel like listeners really like it when we podcasters share our own personal stuff. Um, and so I'm I'm drawn to doing that. And frankly, I mean, I'm sort of a narcissist, you know, like I, <laughs> I, I enjoy telling stories about myself. Um, but I also, I worry, you know, because uh, I mean, I just, I feel like one of the the powers that podcasting has given us is access to new and different voices. And I always want to try to push myself to keep interviewing people that are not like me. You know, like I, it's, it's been a commitment of mine from the beginning of my show that I don't just interview other white guys (laughs) about technology because I feel like there's enough of that out there. I want to interview, you know, like this 60-year-old African-American man about, you know, his relationship to guns and this, uh, you know, 40-year-old Egyptian guy about his relationship to planes and, uh, you know, this, you know, this uh, 
Mexican-American guy about, you know, his relationship to mixed martial arts. And, you know, like I want to get that diversity of experience onto my show. And so, but I, so that's why I see season three as like, I'm going to experiment a little bit with looking at myself, but I'm definitely not going to stay there. I want to keep, you know, trying out different things. No, I I wholeheartedly agree. And I think for me, the past couple of weeks or or months has been about putting myself outside of my comfort zone. When at the conference, there was a workshop where you could throw your name in a hat, the one with Leah Tao and tell a story. (laughs) And so I put it in there and it wasn't like some of the people who went up later. It said, Whoa, I I didn't think I was going to get picked. (laughs) Well, then why'd you put your name in that? (laughs) 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 So I went up there because I wanted to be made uncomfortable. And then like you, you alluded to earlier, that aspect of telling a story in, in public is alluring because as I was telling it, you literally can see these, the, the faces of the people looking back at you and you see the reaction and they're either on the edge of the seat or they're not depending on your skills as a storyteller. But then it's funny because once it happens the first time, you're like, well, I wonder if I could do that again. And which is what I didn't really understand what the moth was <laughs> until, <laughs> until, uh, you know, I came across Leah and strangers and then I realized, ah, okay. Now I know I figure what's going on there. Is there, um, what, it's funny cause you mentioned you, you are trying to not speak to white guys in, in or interview them. But one of the, 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 I thought it was interesting that the, um, these things as miracles that you actually used her incorrect, uh, grammar, if you will, mm. with that phrase as yeah. the title. And yeah. that, is that a stylistic choice? That, you know, it was funny. I, my wife is my editor. Uh, well, I mean, she, I almost always play every episode for her um, before I air it. And she, I asked her to help me find titles. And um, she listened through and she gave me about half a dozen titles. And that was one of the titles that she came up with. And it's interesting because she and I both are teachers um, and both of us have you know, a fair number, like very diverse student bodies. And both of us love the vernacular that our students speak. I mean, we both, I, personally, I actually teach uh, a lesson in my class on um, the fact that, you know, my students' vernacular is not incorrect grammar. It's just different grammar. That every grammar, yeah. like, we talk about dialects, but every language is a dialect. Every form of English is a dialect. It just so happens that there's one dialect that the people in power speak, and they get to call that the correct dialect, right? Yeah. And so, but I did, I, there was a part of me that thought, am I, doing, am I doing something wrong by using this phrase as the title of the show? And I decided to go with it because I just think it's a beautiful phrase. But I see what you're... I, I see what you're asking about that. Well, the fact that you thought about it and the fact that I was thinking about it as I heard it and was reading the title, I guess, um, says something that is, and I'm sure other people may have touched upon it as well. Yeah. I mean, what do you think? Like, No, I mean, the the way when you explain it that way, and it's this whole, you know, um, there was a discussion about this, I think I read about recently, and... Like it's to your point, like the, the dialect is only sounds strange to someone who's not from there. Like here in the East Coast, there's the New York accent and then the Boston accent. 
But if you ask the Boston person who lives in Boston, you know, they don't think they have an accent. <laughs> you know, they don't, they right. speak regular, they speak normally. And the people in New York speak funny or the people in Georgia speak funny. Yeah. And so, and it was, it's an interesting observation that uh, the people who can make the decision about what is proper does come down to the people who are in power. Like with yeah. un- uneducated people and, you know, um, using the uh, the word axe instead of ask, right? Right, yeah. And I, I, the, I, I saw an argument about that one time where I that word used to drive me crazy because I'm just like, you stop saying that. You're like, don't say that because it makes you sound ignorant. <laughs> but Well, and it's so, I mean, I find that subject completely fascinating because I remember hearing a linguist um, talking about, you know, because there was this whole debate in, I think it was maybe the 1990s about whether teachers should be educated about what they called eubonics. Um, and there were some people saying, you know, this is clearly not a language. This is grammar. And, you know, you, you people are crazy. And then other people saying, no, it's definitely a language. And what this linguist said was, he said, believing that eubonics or African-American vernacular, believing that that's not a real language or not a real dialect is like believing the earth is not flat. Like it's not a question of belief. It is a dialect that follows, and he said, and I'll prove it to you, um, he said there are five present tenses that exist in African-American vernacular that do not exist in standard American English, and they follow rules. And And he gave these five examples. So this is the lesson that I give in my class is like, these are five ways of talking about the present tense that sound like grammar errors to a grammar teacher, but they are not errors. They are different tenses. They're different uses of present tense. And so to me, yeah, I just... And and what's fascinating to me is how we judge people based on those things um, without even thinking about it, you know, in, in ways yeah. that we, we wouldn't feel comfortable judging people about other aspects of, you know, their appearance or whatever, but we feel comfortable judging people about the way they use language, even though... It's just as, uh, I don't know, crazy. Yeah, because if you put the proper speaking person in their environment, then they sound incredibly ridiculous. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) Like Thurston Howell III or something. Right. Um, This is fascinating discussion, Rob. I I appreciate you uh, going down some of these rabbit holes with me. Oh, yeah. No problem. <laughs> I have a feeling that I, I'm tempted to to keep going, but uh, I want to be uh, try to not turn it into a three hour episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no problem. But it's um, do your students know that uh, you're a podcast rock star now? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if I know that I'm a podcast rock star. They know some of them listen to my show. Some of them have checked it out. So yeah. What's the response been? Uh, they think it's interesting. Um, what's funny is, uh, the, the student that I interviewed about being a mixed martial arts fighter, he's, uh, he's now an evangelical Christian. And, um, the very next episode that I released after I interviewed him was an episode about, uh, gay marriage. And he was like, that was kind of an interesting episode. (laughs) It was like, uh, yeah, you know, I wondered what you would think about that. And he was like, I'm, I'm, I'm cool with it. I'm cool with it. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's in the minority now, so better get, better get used to it. Exactly. Um, so where can people track you down online? What's the best way? 
Well, my show is at uh, anxiousmachine.com, so pretty easy. And, uh, and then I'm on Twitter at Rob McMyers. Anything, anything su- else surprising you about the popularity of, of the shows? Uh, uh, I don't know. Well, <laughs> why, do you, why do you ask? No, I wonder sometimes because do you, could you have imagined that you would be part of a podcasting collective when you started your show? I mean, I'm both surprised and not surprised. I guess I'm surprised. I mean, the whole, the, the way the internet makes it possible for peop, for audiences to find things surprises me and amazes me all the time. Um, the fact that I once wrote a blog post and, you know, over the weekend, 50,000 people came and looked at it because somebody linked to it, you know, like, that's amazing. Yeah. But at the same time, I sort of feel like the kinds of shows that we're creating in the herd um, and the, the ways that we're, you know, exploring the world um, and the stories that we're telling, I feel like are unique and amazing. And so I'm sort of not surprised that once people are hearing about them, they are gravitating towards them because I think, um, I think they're amazing. Yeah, I think so too. And I, uh, wishing you guys the best of luck. Um, I'm really excited about what you guys have coming up. All right. Thank you so much. So I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Rob. I like to think that he opened up a bit towards the end about uh, his weight issues. That was, that was interesting. And it seems like there's more of that coming. <laughs> He's actually volunteered up the fact that he wants to actually open up even more. If you heard the episode where he talked about his sister's addiction problems, that one's fascinating. Um, called Didn't Want to Be Conscious. And it, it's, man, it's harrowing tale. Like when, when you you realize how deep it's going because you're thinking, wow, this can't get any worse, right? And it, and it does. And you're like, oh, man. And then you realize that this is his sister he's having a conversation with. So I think there's something about our willingness to go places in a podcast. If we're serious and we want to connect that uh, I don't I don't find anywhere else and I'm finding it more and more with this show. Like I, I want to connect with you and I want you to connect with me and I want you to connect with my guests and I want it to be in a way that seems natural and it seems like like you're just listening in on a conversation. So last week we had you guys head over to the Facebook group and I think we'll we'll keep trying that for another couple of weeks and see how it goes. So head on over to um, podcastjunkies.com. You'll see the link for Facebook. You can go to Facebook. And then for this week in the comments for this episode, I think we want to talk about the con- the the theme of anxiety. Because Rob mentioned it at the end. And I mean, we've all been there. <laughs> we've all been in these anxious situations. And his uh, podcast is Anxious Machine. And I wonder what it is that makes you guys anxious. What makes you anxious at work, at home, when you're playing sports, when you're getting ready for work in the morning, when you're going hiking? I don't know. 
Well, I actually, you shouldn't be anxious if you're hiking. So maybe that's a bad example. But just, I was just curious what that word, what, when I say that word, like what, what feeling it, it stirs up inside of you? Let me know. We'll, we'll have an interesting conversation, I'm sure. You know, comment on others' posts as well. So let's do that. And then if you want to share the episode, the, the hashtag for this week is, I don't know. That's interesting. <laughs> I thought it was going to be anxiety, but that's a bit too general. Um, since we talked about a, a lot of things related to connecting with family, um, I think what we'll, what we'll do is we'll make it anxious 51. Yeah, we'll just make it anxious 51. I can't think of anything better right now. So as you can as you can see, <laughs> there's not a lot of back and forth editing. It's a stream of consciousness outro when I tried to do these in one shot. So we'll do that. Uh, hashtag anxious, A-N-X-I-O-U-S 51, if you made it this far. And and then don't forget um, to always continue to show us support. There's probably people that have been listening for a long time and get tired of me saying, reading, and review. So... Um, if that's you, then you can, I'll challenge you to just send the episode to one new person. How about that? Rating and review. And again, podcastjunkies.com. All the links are there. iTunes, go to iTunes and leave it there. And then we'll all be a big, happy family. Have a fantastic week. See you. <laughs>